Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gayomago people by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is Aaron Simmons. Aaron, welcome along. Hey, it's so good to be with you. So good to meet all of your listeners and uh, hope we can meet in person soon once we get out of this mess, right? Oh, that'd be great. Uh, For those who don't know, uh, Aaron Simmons holds a PhD in philosophy from Vanderbilt University and is currently a professor of philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He is the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society in the USA and has published widely in in philosophy of religion, phenomenology and existentialism. Among his authored and edited books are God and the Other, Ethics and Politics After the Theological Turn, The New Phenomenology, A Philosophical Introduction, Kierkegaard's Kierkegaard's God and the Good Life, and Kierkegaard and Levinas, Ethics, Politics and Religion. And Aaron is... uh, Currently just started, but you can join. We're going to get to the details soon. Uh, doing a special pop-up online learning community uh, with our good friend Trip Fuller over at the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast Network uh, called Getting Lost and Finding Faith, Walking with Kierkegaard. But before we get to, I guess, to the course and its nature and why people should do that specifically, uh, why why should someone like you or others uh, well, let's start with you. Why did you get drawn to Kierkegaard? And I guess, first off, what drew you there? And, and I guess what keeps drawing you uh, yeah. to him and his his thought and work? I mean, it, it's such a good question. Um, what drew me initially uh, was, I think, a combination of two things. Uh, and I, I tell these stories uh, in different contexts. And so, um, you emphasize different parts of them. So it's always like, right, what did I say for this other community and how did, how did I you know, narrate it? But to be honest, sort of two things happened. One was I was raised a Pentecostal Christian, um, went to a Christian college. My grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor for 40 years, but I was also raised by two professors. So both my parents were professors at various points in their lives. And so I was never exposed to what I would describe as a kind of fundamentalism or a uh, intellectual closed-mindedness. Christianity mm-hmm. always was for me affective because we were Pentecostals. It was embodied, uh, emotional, but it was also intellectual and rigorous and critically aware because I was being again, educated <laughs> in this space by my parents, right? And when I got to college, Kierkegaard, along with people like Nietzsche and Sartre, were presented as these real dangers to the faith. And it seemed weird to me because, of course, Kierkegaard identifies at least as somebody who's trying to become a Christian, uh, unlike Nietzsche, who says that God is dead and wants nothing to do with, you know, what he sees as the sort of dangerous uh, influences of Christianity, right? And yet, when I got to grad school, this kind of worry was in the back of my mind, and yet a real excitement to kind of, you know, read Mm. stuff that hadn't been exposed, you know, had been offered to me and and made possible in college at the Christian school. And the first time I read Kierkegaard was in a romantic irony class taught by an English professor at Florida State University. And it it was amazing because it didn't make any sense. My goodness, it was, we read either or. So it was written under all these different pseudonyms. Mm. The positions didn't make, they were incoherent. At one point he's advocating for this aesthetic, immediate, passionate, go get the new cell phone and car kind of life. And then the other is this yay marriage, you know, relational (laughs) integrity for all of your days. And so I was so intrigued by how bizarre and nonsensical this book was. And written by this guy who I had been warned 
against mm-hmm. by the likes of people you know, like Francis Schaeffer and others who had said Kierkegaard would sort of, his irrationalism was corrosive to Christian faith. And so I did what grad students do and started digging. And mm-hmm. what I found, and this is what then drew me into it, was that kind of just weird paradox, right? But what mm-hmm. kept me there early on was I discovered someone talking about Christian life and faithfulness in a way that resonated with my own Pentecostal tradition and upbringing. Mm. Now, that's a weird claim because Kierkegaard certainly wasn't a Pentecostal. He's a Danish Lutheran. Um, However, he understood that faith was a lifetime investment. He got the idea that it was an embodied risk. He took seriously the way that we live it rather than just affirm it. Mm. And that's all stuff that made sense to me as a Pentecostal who, who, mm. you know, as I tell people, Pentecostals run during church and then eat spaghetti afterwards. You know, we, we like relationships and we like investment and the riskiness of human existence is part of, I think, what Pentecostalism kind of gets. So my own religious tradition resonated as soon as mm-hmm. I hit Kierkegaard. But what has kept me in Kierkegaard? is I I summarize his thought this way a lot. And it's a a phrase my mom used to say, but it reads Kierkegaard to me. Mm -hmm. It's, you are who you are becoming. So if we take Kierkegaard as a a summary thinker to be telling us you are who you are becoming, then what's kept me in his thinking is the realization that it doesn't matter how old I get or how much I've done or all the fancy things that give me introductions at the beginning of podcasts. (laughs) None of that matters unless this is still something I'm actively taking up as a call Mm. to become a self, to become the person I hope to be. And the only way I can become the person I hope to be is to make the difficult decision and risky investment to be that person now Mm. to the best of my ability. So Kierkegaard speaks to the 19-year-olds who are trying to figure out what to do with their life because he reminds them it's not just about a job. Mm. Life is about becoming a person and becoming a self and jobs will come and go. But selfhood is something that, again, like you're stuck with (laughs) one way Mm. or the other. He speaks to the 65, 70, 75-year-old person retiring, uh, recently widowed. It speaks to the middle-aged person who's wrestling with, does my work still matter because I'm now so overwhelmed and can't have time for my family? But he also speaks to the people who are happy and doing well and yet trying to figure out why it matters to keep doing what they're doing Mm. because we're all already becoming someone And so we should probably get really good at being the person we hope to be. And I think Kierkegaard invites us to do that in really, really compelling ways. Thank you for that. That's a a wonderful uh, introduction there. I was thinking maybe now that we've got like a bit of the why engage his thought, let's talk a bit about the the man, just particularly for those of you who have got very little, um, you know, introduction to Kierkegaard before. Um, So you've mentioned already uh, Danish, uh, Lutheran, we've mentioned already, uh, wrote under a series of pseudonyms, particularly uh, in the early work. Um, people might not know much more than that, I guess. Uh, people might know some yeah. of the, some aspects of the work, but talk just a bit about, you know, who he was in the sense of mm-hmm. how it shaped the work that emerged. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Uh, his lifespan was 1813 to 1855. So he died at 42 years old, younger than I am now, uh, which believe me was uh, very, very scary to me because I became the president of the Kierkegaard Society at 42. And I was like, that can't be good. <laughs> so when I turned 43, I was like, oh, thank God I made it through the uh, gauntlet there. But he lived a really difficult life, um, despite the fact that he ended up being fairly wealthy. He was left a, a pretty sizable inheritance. His life was not one marked by great joy or, or relational contentment. Mm. Uh, in his early years, his, his mother died early. Um, his dad was a best way to describe it. Again, it's sort of technical and we're, we're going to simplify it. But basically think of the kind of fundamentalist Christian who's very rigid and harsh because of a fear of God rather than awe of God, right? Mm -hmm. You're scared of God's punishment, uh, the authoritative, you know, daddy in the sky that's going to spank <laughs> you rather than, you know, the loving parent who's nurturantly inviting you forward. Kierkegaard's dad um, had a harsh notion of the divine. And this then led to Kierkegaard growing up in a way that when he got to college, you know, he he partied, had, had a good time, um, and kind of went everywhere, studied everything, did all kinds of stuff, couldn't really find a, a plan or trajectory. But when he finished up, basically what occurs was um, he ends up getting serious because, you know, his father ends up passing away. He ends up sort of inheriting this large amount of money, which now gives him sort of the freedom to do something with his life. Mm -hmm. And he then starts wrestling with, all right, so what should I do? And he writes mm -hmm. this journal entry as a young man, 21, 22 years old, writes this journal entry where he basically says, what I'm trying to find is what to live and die for. You mm -hmm. know, what is true for me? And he says, I've studied law, I've studied religion, I've studied civics, I've studied all the different things. Mm. What good is it to know all this if it doesn't have traction in my life? And this sometimes gets read as subjectivism. You know, Kierkegaard doesn't believe in objective truth. That's not right. What Kierkegaard's saying is whatever truth is, it only matters if you then pour yourself into it in a way that makes trusting truth the way we live. And so from that point on, um, Kierkegaard gets serious. He breaks an engagement with a woman named Regina Olson, who he was madly in love with, loved her till the day he died, breaks an engagement because he figures I can't both be a husband and faithful to her and faithful to the calling God's placed on my life in order to think through these issues and be this intellectual. Uh, just for your listeners, he was wrong about that. You absolutely should be invested in both ways rather than thinking it's, you know, all or nothing. But he then goes on to write an enormous amount of books. I mean, prolific would be an understatement. And early on, lots of his work is pseudonymous under very strange names. And he does this because what he's trying to do is think about what it means to become a Christian. But in order to think about what it means to become a Christian, you've got to think about, well, what does it mean to be a self or to become a self? And this requires thinking about issues like finitude and death and anxiety and priorities and desire and all the things that mark the human condition. And he didn't think that you could really think through those things unless you thought about them as a lived reality. So it wasn't the philosopher thinking about 
people living X way or Y way or Z way. He had to become someone Xing, right? Mm -hmm. Living Yly in order then to be able to unpack what Y means. It's only ever discussable from inside. And so he describes these as aesthetic, ethical, and religious modes of existence. And he doesn't really say that, you know, two are bad and religion wins, though he's certainly advocating for religious existence. He's really saying we've got to come to grips with what it means to take ourselves up and the consequences that attend the decisions we make. He says at one point that life is the moment of decision. So we don't make a decision and then be a self. We make decisions because we are who we are becoming at every mm. moment. Mm. He also writes a lot of signed work uh, under his own name, which are basically these upbuilding sermons uh, where he takes passages from scripture and unpacks them. Uh, that's my favorite work by Kierkegaard is where he does that stuff. And he does this for you know a number of years, and uh, it comes at great social cost. He gets made fun of in the social in, in the media at the time. He gets made fun of in the society. Um, they mocked him in the newspapers. He would get laughed at mm. uh, in the street. And then towards the end of his life, what ends up happening? He basically is sort of done with his writing. He, he almost kind of says, "I'm out." You know the the sort of. <laughs> I don't know if anybody watches Seinfeld um, and your listeners, but, you mm. know, the George Costanza moment where he's like, thank you and good night and walks out yeah. of the room. Kierkegaard wrote this thing called the concluding unscientific postscript. It was like, I'm done now. I'm explaining how it all works. And then he writes this, what he calls, you know, glance or take on Danish literature, which is basically his coming out that he had written all this stuff and that all these pseudonyms were him. And he writes this retrospective called Point of View on My Work as an Author. So he writes several things that really kind of announce the end of his authorship. And then a few things happen. And the pastor who had been his father's pastor ends up dying, who had kind of kept Kierkegaard in check out of respect for his father's uh, relationship with this man. And Kierkegaard decides to go for the jugular. You know, he kind of throat punches uh, established Christendom. And engages in what's called the attack on Christendom. And in these works, he's critical of the way that Christianity in the established uh, state Danish Lutheran church had become not much more than a kind of political allegiance. You mm. were baptized into the church and with baptism came citizenship. <clears throat> so Kierkegaard is horrified by the way that we've made Christianity and made faith something that is interested in external achievement rather than internal transformation, something that cares about success rather than faithfulness, and something that sees faith as something you have in the background, and now you go do the real things that matter, like get careers and married and stuff like this. And Kierkegaard's like, nah, faith is the highest thing you can pursue. It's a mm. task for a lifetime. So he ends up waging this battle, Again, at very high social cost, especially given that his brother was a uh, pastor in the <laughs> Lutheran church. <laughs> he gets to the point where basically he's exhausted. He's given everything he has to give. Dozens of books, multi-volume journals that he kept his whole life. It was amazing how much work this guy finished. And he ended up passing out in the street, basically. He fell over in the street. He had used up his inheritance. He was no, he had gone through everything. He had used up his body. He had used up his energy, his, his time, and he had used up the words. I mean, mm. he used a bunch. 
a week later dies in the hospital. And at his funeral, his nephew uh, shows up. There's a big debate about his funeral because his brother, of course, wanted him to be buried, you know, in the churchyard, uh, which is, of course, fitting given that Kierkegaard in Danish just means churchyard. Uh, but, you know, others were like, there's no way we can let him be buried in an official church funeral because he was an enemy of the church. <clears throat> this would be horrible. Well, his brother prevailed. They have his funeral at the church and his nephew shows up, who was kind of a, a fan of his uncle and shows up and just starts a riot, basically. I mean, it, it's how dare you, you pit of vipers. You've not listened to anything he had to say. You know, mm -hmm. this is the worst thing you could do. You're trying to whitewash his legacy that was actually, you know, repulsed by everything that you've made Christianity. And so his life was birthed in controversy, lived in regret and misery in lots of ways, and died in more controversy and frustration. Mm. And his authorship, though, sings. Mm. It sings about joy and passion and investment and hospitality. And it, it's it's a really interesting story about how one can write, uh, given that this guy was trying to write from the perspective of people living things. Mm. Somehow he managed to write from the perspective of somebody who loved living and mm. loved the human condition and thought it mattered and yet lived a life that was not exactly marked by such joy. Uh, his work now, as far as reception, uh, he is widely recognized as one of the founders, the leader, leading lights of what became existentialism. This is because he writes about things like despair and anxiety and death and you know the, the issues that then get kind of famous in the 20th century with people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and others. But what's also happened is He's been appropriated both by people like me who see him as sort of the great hope for what Christianity has always been and could be again if we could break free from the established church that continues to have mm -hmm. the microphone in most of our societies. But he's also appropriated by um, deconstructionists, by existentialists, by critical theorists, areas I work in as a professional and, you know, the religious dynamics kind of fall away because he just gets the human condition right. <laughs> so whether you read him to figure out how to be a better human or to be human at all, or you read him because as a human, you're trying to figure out how to be a better Christian, mm. um, <clears throat> he, he just seems to get that stuff, mm. if not perfect, he sure gets it right in ways that I think are compelling. Mm. And and it's worth taking a risk to walk with him as the class Trip and I are doing together is titled. Mm. Because when you go for a walk, you have to be willing to get lost. Mm. And getting lost might be the way we find faith in societies where everybody already thinks they are perfectly faithful. Mm. So Kierkegaard's critique of his own space, I think, is a resounding invitation to be critical in similar ways in our own. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. I was thinking if people know one thing that Kierkegaard wrote, it's probably that he wrote a bit, a bit about Abraham and Isaac and, and the, the sacrifice there on the mountain. Um, so maybe we'll talk, just talk a bit about, you know, fear and trembling and, and, and what is going on there. And particularly, I guess, maybe if you could place it a bit in that, uh, in that biography of where you talk about what part of the, the, the movement of his life that was in um and particularly you know what what was he trying like how does that 
shapes, you know, what he's trying to get at um, yeah. in these, you know, when you read the start of that book, these multiple accounts of what is going on uh, mm-hmm. in, in this most uh, dramatic of, of yeah. uh, biblical scenes. Yeah. So he writes a book called Fear and Trembling, uh, fairly early in his authorship, actually. Mm-hmm. And he, he writes it ostensibly to ask the question, how is it possible that Abraham can be taken as the father of faith? Mm-hmm. Now, you might think, well, what a stupid question. He, he is the father of faith. Why do you have to like, why is this a problem? Well, the problem um, is that ostensibly that would mean the father of Christian faith um, and, and uh, we might even say, you know, the father of classical theism, right? You know, extending mm-hmm. to other faith traditions as well. Um, it sure looks like someone willing to commit uh, murder, <laughs> right? So <laughs> h- how is it that we're celebrating Abraham mm-hmm. given that he was like ready to kill his son? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of person that now, you know, the, the mother who drowns her children in the bathtub because God tells her to, we don't celebrate that person and give them a like pew with a nameplate at the end mm-hmm. of the aisle. We lock them up and we say, that's not something that is allowable in civic society. Mm-hmm. That is dangerous to who we are. So Kierkegaard fascinated by that problem. Mm-hmm. Why is it that faith is nested in a narrative of someone who seems not to be faithful, but to be out of his ever loving mind. Mm. So he takes on a pseudonym, a guy named Johannes de Salentio, and writes the book under that pseudonym. <clears throat> the, the name just translates as John of Silence, which of course is also weird and has yielded no end of dissertations, trying to figure out, well, what was Kierkegaard really silent about? And what was he saying? And who's he talking to? And the book basically unfolds in a, it's almost musical. It it unfolds in a series of movements. And what these movements do is they basically argue the only way that we can make sense of Abraham as the father of faith is if particular things obtain. So the first thing that obtains is there has to be some way that ethical expectations and moral demands can be suspended in relationship to a a higher relation to God. So rather than just narrating God as a kind of divine command theorist, where ethics just is whatever God says, right, which lots of people defend that view, Kierkegaard, Salentio, really do reject it in my reading, because it says there is no higher expression of the ethical, like divine command theory, that would override our social conception of you know, moral norms. Instead, it's a suspension of ethics as a domain that impinges on my behavior. But Mm. how in the world can I suspend moral demands because God tells me to? Mm. Well, isn't God the author of the moral demand in the first place? So so this question Mm. is the first movement. And what he basically argues is, yeah, there has to be somehow a a paradoxical relation where a single individual, Abraham in this case, would stand higher in relation to God than the universal context in which ethics obtains. Mm -hmm. So ethics by definition is a universal obligation, right? So 
if we say ethics gets suspended, what that means is my relation to God overrides my identity as part of this universal objective mm. we or they articulated in light of this ethical space. Mm. And the argument is, look, if that's the case, Abraham's a murderer. If, if, if this doesn't obtain, Abraham's a murderer, right? Only if Abraham can stand faithfully in a relation to God in a way that allows ethics to be suspended, could he be the father of faith and not just a murderer who wasn't very successful at killing his kid? <clears throat> this is weird. Mm. <clears throat> but the upshot of that is faith is not weak knowledge or weak belief that we wish were knowledge or things that we, as Mark Twain says, you know, faith is believing what you know taint true. Kierkegaard says wrong. Faith is not an epistemic issue. Faith is about a paradoxical investment in the singular relation to the absolute. This is where some people might begin to protest. That sounds very irrational. What happens to the church? What about the congregation? <clears throat> Kierkegaard says, look, those are important issues, important ideas, <clears throat> but we can't get to those unless it's possible for Abraham to be the father of faith. And the only way that's possible is to recognize faith is not a congregational thing. Faith is a radically invested trusting mm. that is risky. Abraham might've just been wrong, you know, like the Charles uh, Dickens play, you know, maybe he ate some bad cheese or, you know, just stayed up too late the night before and wasn't hearing God, but was just, you know, had the upset stomach and started to kill his kid. This is scary stuff. So if faith is something else, he calls, Kierkegaard calls it the highest passion available, mm -hmm. an inwardness that in my reading doesn't exclude congregation, doesn't exclude community, but it does say you aren't somehow grafted into a relation to God just because you know the right people. Right. Mm -hmm. So though I am on the political left and celebrate movements like liberation theology that talk about, you know, the sort of community focus when it comes to issues like salvation, Kierkegaard, though, gets something right that I think we need to hear, which is just because you're wealthy, just because you're white, just because you're, um, you know, cisgendered or straight or whatever the identity markers just because you're raised in church. These are not the things that constitute what it means to be in a personal relation to a personal God. Mm. And that personal relation to a personal God is no respecter of persons. It is instead an invitation to personhood, an invitation to selfhood. And that's why it's got to be this paradox. That's why it can't just be, but I lived a good life. <laughs> Aren't I good then? Right <clears throat> now he moves on and he says, yeah, but we've, also got to think about what it means to then unpack these ideas. And so he goes through questions of what this absolute relation would mean, what it would look like. Um, he debates whether Abraham could have told Sarah or Isaac what's going on. Hey, Isaac, look, I heard from God. I got to go kill you. It's going to be fine, though, man. Like, And Kierkegaard says, no, he couldn't have told because Abraham didn't understand it himself. Mm. because it wasn't an epistemic knowing it was instead a trusting with risky consequences mm. but doesn't that sound an awful lot like living mm. <laughs> right you know mm. and so fear and trembling is this book length reflection on abraham but this is where the scholars start getting excited it's unclear whether it is really about abraham 
And my view is it's not. It's really a book that is an invitation to take seriously what it means to be faithful as a lived practice for me Mm. or you or any one of the listeners, right? So that investment is really, I think, what's so powerful. And it's only, I argue, and I'm, I'm arguing a view, not the view here. I argue that it's only because Abraham continues to love Isaac and continues to love Sarah, that he's able to do this. Because the point is not, you know, go destroy the thing you don't care about. It's, Mm -hmm. are you willing to recognize that your love of Isaac, your love of Sarah, which is your world, that that love is grounded in the idea of existence as a gift from God? Mm -hmm. Well, now we've got a very different reading of the Abraham story, right? It's not, look how faithful Abraham was when God asks you to do it, you do it, because this is just what it means, divine command, yay, yay, yay. It's, no, what does it mean fundamentally to receive the human condition is not something to escape, Mm-hmm. but something to be further invested in because this is what a canonic God models for us. Mm-hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, that that's a heck of a way to talk about what faith is, right? It's again, it's a walking, it's a walking mm-hmm. with rather than simply following the trail that God has, you know, lightning bolted in the woods. And so we just have to keep moving through it. Like, Nope. The trail may not be clearly marked, but when you're getting lost, God's walking with you. And that idea of faith is, I think, ultimately what it means when Kierkegaard says that Abraham didn't just have faith for the next life, as if, well, if I kill Isaac, I'll get Isaac back in eternity. He had faith for this life. And that's the big, powerful moment. So many of us tend to think that Christianity is a matter of faith for the next life. And this is why you know, we'll engage in culture wars or whatever it is because we're trying to save as many people as possible. Kierkegaard says, nah, (laughs) do you have faith for this life? Are you inviting people to live more investedly, to be more reflective, to be more humble, to care about justice? And even though Kierkegaard doesn't develop some of these ideas in the way that others have you know this is why again i do go to liberation theology to flesh out well what does this then look like and how do we appropriate the minor prophets to put in place mm-hmm. you know anti-racist conceptions of christian living Kierkegaard didn't do that but i think the existential framework Kierkegaard offers is what resonates nicely about what it means then for you or me to then take up those sorts of social tasks as you know inherently part of what christian living involves Mm. well thank you for that that was that was wonderful so i think it was a while ago now it was a year ago now we had um ted veal on the the podcast so much schleiermacher and one of the Mm. things he was doing in his work is to show that like while in like the anglo sphere like um schleiermacher is very much received as a theologian and then that's the primary if not exclusive way that his work is engaged um, but and he's trying to show that, well, no, no, in many other places, Schleimach is read as this philosopher, you know, all the other disciplines that he engaged. And so you were talking before about Kierkegaard being, you know, in his reception, being taken up by theologians and Christians seeking to know, okay, what does it mean for a self to become a Christian? Um, but he's also taken up in, in totally other um, professional, uh, academic, and critical theory disciplines. Mm-hmm. 
and my thought is for those you know Christians who are who are, who are engaging Kierkegaard and wrestling with his work and thinking, are there particular things you think are gained by thinking about what people with entirely other commitments mm. and projects mm. are wrestling with in his work and thinking of? Yeah. Like what's what's to be gained in that kind of conversation um, that might be lost if we're just thinking uh, Kierkegaard is someone who helps me think about what Christianity should could, yeah. might be. No, that. I, I love this question and I love it because so often what it means to think Christianly is to think triumphalistly, mm. <laughs> right? It's, it's to think we've already got the truth. So I don't need to hear the objections because hearing the objections is just an opportunity for me to be deceived. Mm. <laughs> and uh, we're seeing a lot of that in America right now, unfortunately, um, United States where an awful lot of certain dynamics and denominational uh, realities within especially white Christianity and white Protestantism here in America, it, it's, it's inviting a triumphalism that has actively, in my opinion, actively contributed to the amount of suffering that we have experienced during the pandemic. And that's not even to begin to talk about the amount of suffering that has also been perpetrated relative to systemic racism being denied by you know those those people, um, homophobia that then leads to genuine trauma being felt by uh, far too many young women and men, um, a fear of transgender identity in ways that again doesn't invite hospitality and learning, but instead tries to educate from the knowledge that we have. Right. I think all of that is not only idolatrous, self-serving uh, idolatry. I think it's what Kierkegaard would call demonic. And that's a word I use very guardedly mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, I think people overread it. Right. Mm-hmm. But but it, it it is such an inversion of the Christianity that Kierkegaard models to think that what Christian living would involve is a kind of circling of the wagons, whether epistemically, politically, or otherwise, um, a gatekeeping kind of model of who gets to come in and who gets to, you know, get get prevented from access. And I think that when we as Christians um, are really invested in what it means to commit ourselves to a narrative of a God who says, look, it's not about getting you up to me, but it's about me coming to you. This is what Jean-Luc Marion, another philosopher I do a lot of work on, calls counter-intentionality. It's not that we are these seers who look at the object and have it figured out. It's we are these recipients of having been looked at by God, Mm. having been loved by God. And it turns out that when we take ourselves up in that way, Man, what a radical humility it invites. So the first point is a long way to get to this point. But the first point is, I think that when Christians pay attention to other discourses appropriating somebody that they think they have, um, you know, exclusive license to, mm. what they will learn first and foremost is radical humility, not only in epistemic matters, right? That we may not know everything. We can learn from others. But I would say also in ethico-religious ways, Mm. where it becomes maybe I'll learn more about Christian living by paying attention to lives 
that are mm-hmm. lived virtuously, mm-hmm. whether Christian or not. Um, in, in my own life, part of what has happened, much to the chagrin of, of many people at my church and my family, you know, I've moved from a kind of traditional exclusivism when it comes to soteriology and salvation to a hopeful universalism. Mm. Not because Kierkegaard, I mean, he, he <laughs> didn't hold that view um, necessarily, but, but because of the humility that I think reading widely invites, and Kierkegaard was who taught me to be invested in reading widely, mm. right? So humility be point one. Point two would be, um, I think <laughs> one of the ways that humility is not displayed is when we depend on self-sufficiency as the narrative uh, by which we then engage the world. So as an example, um, recently, you may have heard about this um, across several ponds. Um, you know, we, we had a leading political figure in America who claimed that the goal was to make America great again. Mm. Well, that's a really strange commitment if you are someone who reads widely, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The, the goal is not to make America great again. The goal is America would only ever be great if it were radically aware mm-hmm. of its injustice. Mm-hmm. Jacques Derrida has this great line um, in a book called uh, The Other Heading, L'Autre Cap, where he says, you know, Europe is something to claim as an identity only if being European is defined as a hospitality even to those who would threaten Europe. Mm. That's a weird claim, right? Because normally you think, no, we got to keep out people who are... But what he's trying to say is radical hospitality is transformative such that those who would be enemies when shown love rarely stay enemies in the same way. Mm. So the most direct example I can give of how this would play out would be, um, again, a debate going on here in the States. Maybe it's going on elsewhere as well would be uh, critical race theory, which mm-hmm. in America is such a hot button topic. And it's been presented by pastors across the country as evil and anti-Christian mm-hmm. and, you know, demonic. And, you know, in the, the sense that I'm not using the word. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's staggering to me. Because every view has things that we should raise critical questions about. Mm. But critical race theory at its most basic is a view that says, shouldn't we be aware and own up to the legacy and history of racism and white supremacy that gets codified as law and then serves to disempower, marginalize, and undercut the status of millions of people Mm for the very reason that they simply weren't part of the power structure who decided to make invisible this power. Mm-hmm. So the way I just described it's intentional. What does that sound like to me? It sounds like freaking kenosis, right? Like <laughs> the whole point is, well, what should we do? We should then be aware and invested in displacing ourselves to invite others to have place. Kierkegaard has several books at the end of his life where he reflects over and over and over and over about the communion invitation. Come all who are heavily burdened. Come all who are weary. Come all who are tired. 
and my emphasis, like Kierkegaard, is on the all. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It it's not mm-hmm. come those of you who, yeah. right? It's come all. And if we really want to understand come all in Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. the best place you can go is not to the Christian Kierkegaard scholars, though they are amazing and I have learned from them and I am one of them. <laughs> you should ignore my work and go read people like Derrida, again, in the philosophy camp, uh, like critical race theorists, like womanists, like queer theory, because what those discourses are is an attempt to say, hey, your all doesn't include me. It doesn't include us. So be aware of the way that your invisible self-sufficiency is actually something that is a decision codified in social structures to exclude the most marginal. Mm. And that's tricky for me because my goodness, <laughs> God of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, uh, doesn't look a lot like the God of white nationalism to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I got making this political, but I think it's the best answer to the question, yeah. right? Which yeah. is why should we read people who are not doing it the way we do? Because we should rupture the thought that our way of doing it is the best or right or only way. Now, it doesn't mean that we then become so humble that, well, I mean, who am I to say anything and I have no view? No, 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 no. True confidence is grounded in genuine humility. Mm. I stand where I stand because I realize there's other places to stand. And that would be the last thing I think we can gain is the realization that faith and faithfulness are not an exclusively religious idea in positive senses. Mm. Sartre says faithfulness is also something that is involved when you're trying to become an atheist. Mm. I'm with him, (laughs) right? (laughs) So this is why faith to me is simply risk with a direction. Mm. And if I want to learn more about why people would willingly risk their identity, their future, their commitments, their family, their finitude in a direction that is not the direction I have chosen, Mm. I'd better be very hospitable to what they are saying Mm. rather than thinking, my goodness, what fools. (laughs) So, So those ideas, humility, hospitality, and a genuine awareness of the way that kenosis requires an embrace of powerlessness as true manifestation of, of moral life. Mm, wonderful. Thank you, Aaron. So yeah. this has been a great conversation. I, I've truly loved it. So this is going to come out Monday coming, just the Monday, a few days from now. Uh, so talk to us about getting lost and finding faith, walking with Kierkegaard, an online yeah. pop-up learning community uh, hosted with you and Trip Fuller. There'll be a link in the show notes that people can click on while you talk, but um, mm-hmm. it's not too late to get involved, folks. So no. let us know a bit about it and what's what people can expect. Oh, please, please hop in. And I should make clear, um, your, your questions, this is for prefatory, your questions were so provocative and substantive that I thought it would be dismissive not to answer them in substantive ways. <laughs> um, so the, the online pop-up learning community is not something that requires people to be aware of Derridian deconstruction or have done work in Schleiermachian hermeneutics, right? This is for everybody. Mm, Great. But we're trying to make it something that is engaging and accessible to 
you know, the person who has never heard Kierkegaard's name until this conversation and says, Whoa, that sounds interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. Come on in. The water's right. fine. <laughs> and also the scholar who maybe knows Kierkegaard really, really well, but would like to hear a kind of um, conversation about these main ideas in a way that hopefully propels us forward mm. and able to share them. So, for example, we've already got, I think it's like 1,600 people involved in the course so far. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is staggering. Yes. Right. Uh, the Kierkegaard Society in America does not have that many people. <laughs> Let me make clear. So, it's exciting to be thinking about Kierkegaard yeah. with an audience that is so diverse, it's so international. Mm. Um, th that it's forcing Trip and I to push each other to say, all right, let's say that technically for those who want to kind of track with it. And now let's not let each other get away with not then, mm -hmm. what are the brass tacks? Where does that hit the road? What does that look like for a lived, lived context? So everybody's welcome. We'd love to have you. All you need to do is go to iheartkierkegaard.com, <laughs> iheartkierkegaard.com, and you can sign up. Uh, it's free. There's an opportunity to donate to the work that Trip is doing to Homebrew Christianity, but it's not required. Um, so pay if you can and are interested. If you can't, please still come and think with mm -hmm. us, right? And what we do is every Tuesday, it started yesterday, actually, or, or uh, this past week, whenever this airs, it was um, one week out. And it's uh, basically you when you sign up, you'll get a invitation to a Facebook group if you're on Facebook. You also will get a link to a resource page where all of the, you know, episodes, the, the conversations are then posted. And so some of them are pre-recorded because we were trying to make sure we had some content. Others are live. Mm -hmm. So this upcoming one is probably going to be a live one, which we're real excited about. And so this allows us as people are watching, if they want to hop on while it's being mm -hmm. streamed, they can be asking questions and be part of the actual conversation to help shape it. And if you don't have time to watch live when it's being aired, we will give you the links to all this so you can watch it on your own time. Maybe you pop in for the last one and do that one live with us where we've got Q&A and have a, a bigger conversation. Um, the Facebook group is great. I spent several hours last night just responding to all of the comments from the first airing. And it's amazing. I mean, people from all over the world, uh, people in their 80s talking about having recently been widowed and uh, you know, wrestling with the meaning of life, other people talking about, you know, being teenagers and wrestling mm. with who they're becoming and why it matters. And the debate that emerges is so rich and so accessible mm. that no one is left out. And if you feel left out, that just means that you then haven't asked a question because I'm going to do my best to respond to it in a mode that you can engage and take seriously. And hopefully this provides some genuine hope and, and encouragement in a time mm. where, man, it's hard to find right now. And, and yeah. being able to think with 1600 people about Kierkegaard around the world, man, I'm in, right? <laughs> it, it sucks being isolated. It sucks being in lockdown, but as long as we've got a computer, we can think and read together and that is genuinely fantastic. And so I'm honored to do it. Trip is an amazing host. And he and I have an absolute ball uh, batting these ideas back and forth while also thinking about a lot of, you know, 90s uh, hip hop and contemporary heavy metal and, um, you know, our, our shared love for the outdoors. So it, it's a really fun, fun, fun opportunity. And I hope your audience will come join us. 
great. I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be folks who are very keen. And just thank you so much for this conversation for this wading in to the to the thought and life of Kiffy Artists. It's been oh, it's been great. Yeah, really helpful and refreshing well, and, and exciting and energizing. Well, let me offer one other option for people who may not be able to do the Kierkegaard yes. class or maybe are more broadly interested in thinking philosophically about daily life, um, but not Kierkegaard specific. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love them to check out my YouTube channel. It's yes. simply called Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. And it's something I started in COVID. I've got, I don't know, 170, 180 videos that I've done in the last year and a half. And they're basically four or five minute videos. Half the time, it's when I'm out mountain biking or fishing or <laughs> you know hiking or whatever it is. But it's it's an attempt to think substantively, philosophically, rigorously, but always concretely. Mm. And say, hey, you don't need a PhD to do philosophy. Mm. And in fact, PhDs often get in the way of being a philosopher. <laughs> and so if philosophers are those people who take seriously what everybody else takes for granted, and who put question marks where everybody else puts periods. I invite them to come put a few question marks uh, in their life with me on philosophy for where we find ourselves on YouTube. I'd absolutely love to engage them there. I also respond to the mm-hmm. comments and it would be an honor to have them as, as part of that community as well. Fantastic. So that, that link will also be down the show notes for anyone who wants to, that's great. That's, that's, and that's a lot of videos over a year and a half. So <laughs> I, I, I have a iPhone, I admit. And yeah, uh, sure. so I admit some, some of the uh, production is not super, super high quality, but it is the best I yeah. can do uh, with yeah. what I got because life is where we are. And sure. we talk about everything from a windy day and what wind might remind us about the fleeting nature of human existence <laughs> to the other day, I was sitting outside uh, getting ready to make a fire for my son and one of his friends to roast a hot dog and make a s'more. <laughs> and it occurred to me, it's like, man, this is worth doing with my limited time in existence. And mm. so I started talking about uh, Kierkegaard's idea of finding the sublime in the pedestrian. And linked it to a contemporary philosopher, Aaron James, who wrote a great book called Surfing with Sartre, where he says, we've got to find wonder in the everyday. Mm. And so it was a little four minute, like, yo, I'm sitting by a fire getting ready to start this fire. But you know what I'm thinking about? Like this. And maybe this is something that helps you navigate whatever you're dealing with today as well. So Mm. it's been great. And to be honest, most of it is, uh, very little of it is me lecturing. It's me saying, Hey, here's something I'm wrestling with. Maybe this will speak to you. Um, because I think philosophy is something very few of us have time to do professionally, Mm -hmm. but all of us, I think should be invested in living philosophically. Mm. Well, Aaron, that's wonderful. And thank you for this conversation and, uh, folks do check out both the YouTube channel and the class. Uh, and maybe we'll get you back on another time to have another conversation because this has been a, a, a wonderful time. So, Yeah, go well and um, speak to you again. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, whenever you want to have a chat about trout fishing and theology, (laughs) I'm down, man. You just let me know. So to to your audience, thank you for your time. It's been a genuine honor to be with you. And yes, I hope to see you in the class or on the YouTube channel. And they can reach out to me individually. Email me, whatever I can do. I, I look forward to knowing all of them. That's wonderful. All right, thanks, folks. We'll see you next week.